the very first tenet of the portfolio life, you are more than your job. You don't want to lose your identity, your passion, your livelihood, all in the same conversation, right? And that's what happens when we pitch our identity to this profession that we've chosen. So all of this has to start with an understanding of who am I? What do I bring to the table? What do I care about separate from how am I currently monetizing my time? That's a choice of how I'm, how I'm putting those talents to use, not who I am when I wake up in the morning. This is Christina Wallace, a self-described human Venn diagram with a career at the intersection of business, technology, and the arts. Through years of trial and error, Christina discovered that her seemingly unrelated talents and interests made her stronger, not unfocused. And she's here to tell you how to lean into your own portfolio life. Hi, I'm Lara Dolch, and this is She Knows the Way, a show about deciding what's next when doing what's expected no longer feels right. When I first came across Christina Wallace's latest book, The Portfolio Life, I knew immediately that it was for me. It made me feel seen and validated a way of life I've been living for over a decade. Christina and I are classic multi-hyphenates, or human Venn diagrams, as Christina likes to say. We operate best at the intersection of our various talents and interests. As I mentioned, Christina's Venn diagram includes business, technology, and the arts. Mine is made up of education, communications, and leadership development. But the way multi-hyphenates define success can sometimes look chaotic to the outside world. In addition to being an author and entrepreneur, Christina is also a senior lecturer at Harvard Business School. She wondered what would happen if she applied frameworks from the business and financial worlds to planning her life. This approach, she argues, gives a portfolio life a distinct advantage over a more linear one. An advantage that can help you navigate an uncertain world marked by constant disruption. So, if you've ever been told you're unfocused, or worse, a flake, you'll see yourself in Christina's story. One quick disclosure before we get to the conversation, Christina and I are working together on a project related to the portfolio life. But we didn't know each other prior to the conversation in this episode, and the project wasn't even an idea yet. As Christina and I settled in for our chat, the facilitator in me just had to ask a random warm-up question. Christina's answer launched us into an unexpected, but turns out, perfectly aligned conversation. What is the most boring thing about you? Oh, that one's easy. Can't believe I'm admitting to this. There are many areas of my life where I care about the best, the whatever, but eating is just one of them. So I am a satisficer, not a maximizer when it comes to restaurants. I go to, at every restaurant that I like going to, there is a thing that I eat there. And so I decide where I want to eat based on what I want to eat. And then I don't have to look at the menu. And I am, I am even that person where I'm at like a new restaurant 
I will read the menu up to the point where I see the first thing on it that I would be delighted to eat. And then I stop reading the menu. This is the same reason why I drink rosé, because usually on any wine menu, there's two, max three rosés. I pick the cheapest or the middle priced one so that I don't have to make the decision. I love this. I love this streamlining approach to food because I, I am definitely a maximizer when it comes to restaurants and food, like just food in general. And actually for listeners who aren't familiar with these terms, can you explain the sure. difference between a maximizer and a satisfizer? Yeah, it's just, there's a, I, I don't even remember what the research, where it came from, yeah, who came up with I. this idea, but there's research behind this. It basically says that when you make a decision, um, everyone, and, and it will change by the category. So you're not, there. very few people are always maximizers or always satisficers. But within a category, you might say, I care about the very best. That's a maximizer. And that's someone who will go and evaluate all of the choices and will do the pro-con list and will make the trade-offs. And you constantly care about like, did I make the right choice? Because I wanted the best choice. And satisficers are like, I just need a good enough choice. Like as long as it meets my minimum threshold, I'm satisfied. And so you, you can think about like where you might have tension in your life with maybe a business partner or a life partner where like one of you might be a maximizer and the other one is a satisficer. And you're kind of like, this cares. And they're like, it really doesn't. Um, so in, in my marriage, it's very much whichever one cares more makes the decision. But there are, there are pieces of my life where I'm like, I spend so much energy making decisions all day long that this is just not one of them that I care about getting the best. I just want good enough. And for me, eating is a good enough category. Yeah. Yeah. I love that layer of the categories because I hadn't really, I'd forgotten that piece of it where, yeah, it obviously changes from sure. category to category. As we're thinking about redefining what success looks like for us, Mm-hmm. There are probably areas in which we are maximizers and satisficers, and that is relevant. Can you talk about that? What comes to mind for you? A hundred percent. This is so relevant because I think I, mean, I, I see this when my students come into my office hours and there's this, this uh, friction for them between what matters to them and what they think should matter to them. Mm, and, yes. and I think this comes out here when you think about your definition of success. There's what you might imagine your parents care about or society cares about or your professional peers care about. And then there's what you actually care about. And so when you think through like, what, what do I really want to maximize? What do I want like the very best out of this category? And what am I okay with good enough? And there are going to be phases of your life where those categories might even change. So you could be in a phase where you're you know, really ambitious, you have a lot of energy, you have a lot of time, and you're like, you know what, I am going to go and learn as much as I can, work as hard as I can, be as ambitious as I can, and just see how far I can go. And I am going to maybe do just good enough on my health and my hobbies, and, you know, maybe investing in kind of other communities beside my professional world. Like, I'm going to go all in on professional life. And then you might have a chapter of your life and you're like, you know what? I kind of am okay with good enough in the professional realm. Like maybe I just want the good enough job. And, you know, it, it's, it keeps me challenged. It gives me what I need, maybe the stability, the income, the health insurance. But I'm not in a growth chapter professionally because I need the time to really invest in my family 
or my hobbies, or maybe there's this other thing that I'm interested in and I want to go and explore it. So I'm going to do the satisficer on the professional side in order to free up actual time, psychological space, whatever it is, to allocate elsewhere. And this really has to come from a place of what matters to you for this season of your life. And that is an incredibly personal thing to define, but that's the work of defining success for you for now, for this chapter of life. Yeah. Yeah. And letting go for me of the guilt and shame that sometimes comes with not defining success the way that you are, quote unquote, expected to, right? Like this whole show is about that. (laughs) It's about like making those choices when the sort of standard path, the expected path doesn't feel right. I'm curious for you, do you have any practices that have helped you really stay in touch with that as that definition of success has changed throughout your life? Yeah. One of the tools that I sort of adapted from the business world to help me wrap my arms around the whole picture and not just the easily quantified, easily measured pieces of my life is called the personal balance scorecard. You know, in the business world, a balance scorecard is a way to help you assess the whole business, right? And balanced. And so you have these different elements. You say, these are our strategic priorities. This is the, you know, the choices we're going to make this year against those priorities. And this is how we are going to evaluate at the end of the year, whether or not we met those work streams. And when I adapted this for my own life, I realized from like the very beginning, my professional, my career was only one piece of the balanced scorecard and that I could put in all of my professional goals, my growth, my network and community, all of that had a place. and. I also cared about other things and I wanted to ensure that I wasn't losing sight of those other things in favor of like putting the marginal hour in my career. And so I enumerated those other things. I said, you know, what are my goals for my relationships, my family, my friends? What are my goals for personal development, hobbies, side hustles, projects that I'm really interested in? And what are my goals financially and my health? goals, right? Like I, I listed them all out and I said, okay, how will I know that I've met these goals? Like what specifically am I going to measure myself against? And seeing this all in one place helped me really visualize that my career is a piece of my life and it has to be in the context of my life. And so when I'm deciding that marginal hour where I'm going to put it, I can look back at that and say like, I'm actually killing it on the professional side. I haven't been to the gym all week. Put that hour in a yoga class. Don't go and crunch a few more emails. And so it helps me remember all of the elements that I have determined matter to me. And crucially, there's a a question at the bottom of this balance scorecard. I do this every year. I give myself a little grade and be like, oh, did I, you know, did I make the majority of these goals? But then the very bottom, there's a question that says, are you happy? And what I love about throwing in that question at the end, it's sort of like a checksum if you're someone who builds financial models. It's a way to double check that I didn't build the wrong model, that I didn't build the wrong scorecard. Because it's really easy for high achieving folks like myself to ace a test they don't care about. Yes. (laughs) Oh my gosh, I love that. And so the are you happy is like, maybe you rocked your scorecard this year Are those the things that actually matter? 
And when you start being like, oh, I'm, I don't think I am happy or like, I'm not sure these these matter to me anymore. It's a sign that friction, it's a sign that you need to rebalance your priorities. This whole journey that you've been on to come to this framework of the portfolio life. Talk to me a little bit about that journey. So the portfolio life, I describe it as based on these three tenets. Number one, you are more than any one job or opportunity. Number two, diversification is what's going to help you navigate change and mitigate the uncertainty of the future. And then number three, when your needs change, not if, when they change, you can and should rebalance your portfolio. So it's based on the same idea as a financial portfolio, right? You have a bunch of things that you could invest in. How are you going to allocate your time and talents across the things that matter to you? And it's it's a way of you know visualizing, as I've just been saying, your work in the context of your life, because any hour you give to one is an hour that can't be invested elsewhere. And so you you imagine and, and plot out sort of what are the things that matter? How do I meet my needs and make progress toward the, the wishes, the dreams that I have for my life across this mix of work, of hobbies, of relationships, of health, of community, all of the pieces that make you you and that bring you joy. I started on this path. I mean, honestly, I've been basically trying to write this book probably my whole life as a way of putting a, a name on, a, a framework around this feeling that I've had. And, and as I've been writing about these ideas for years, I was a columnist for a while for Forbes. I've been doing speeches on this. I kept getting emails from people saying, thank you for, for putting a name to this thing that I've been feeling like somehow if it has a name, it's legitimate in a way that if it's not, you're like, I'm flaky and flailing. And you're like, no, no, you're living a portfolio life. So I've been working on these ideas for a while just purely to solve my own problem. And that is I am someone from birth who has been a multi-hyphenate who cares about lots of different things. And crucially, I find the intersection of those disciplines, those you know, industries, those communities to be the most interesting. It's where I bring in like, hey, this isn't a new idea, but it's from a different world. Could we adapt it here? Or let me introduce you to someone that you might never run across, but I bet like the the melding of your minds might get us something really innovative. That's where I've always lived. And so I have built this career where I started out in the arts. I was an actor and a director and I worked in arts management for the Metropolitan Opera. And I went off to business school thinking my future was going to be in arts management. And when I got to business school, the financial crisis happened and there were no jobs. There were no jobs, especially in nonprofit arts management. And so I either could be like, oh, you're up against a wall. You've got nowhere to go. Or I could be like, OK, how do I take what I do and pivot and use it in a different way? And I stumbled across technology startups and realized that a lot of what I loved about making theater, making opera, was relevant in making startups. It was sort of have this idea. I'm going to rally a a team around me. We're going to go from nothing to a really ugly version of something. And then we're going to put it out in the world and see if anyone likes it. And then we're going to keep going. And we have to do the whole thing on like $7 and a roll of duct tape. But we're going to make it happen, right? That that hustle, that grit um, is what I love. I was like, okay, so... I'll go into tech startup. 
And I spent a decade in technology startups. And then I got to the end of that decade and my husband and I wanted to have a kid. And I thought, I love what I do, but this like working 70, 80, 90 hours a week, traveling 100,000 miles a year, that is not consistent with the type of mother I want to be, at least in the earliest stages of, of young children. So how can I take what I do and pivot it into a different context that gives me what I need and still helps me make progress against what I want? And all along the way, if there are needs that are not being met by the day job, and there always are, there's no perfect job that meets all of your needs, I supplement through hobbies, through volunteering, through relationships to say, in this job, I don't get to create. So can I go write? Can I go sing with a choir? Should I have a podcast? I'm going to go invest in Broadway shows to stay close to the theater world in a, like a slightly more hands-off way. Like, how can I still maintain the pieces that matter to me in a different mashup? Yeah. Yeah. I'm glad you said that too, because I think that for a long time, there's been this myth that we have to get everything from our work, right? Well, there's this whole generation, I mean, multiple generations, I think, who were told, do what you're passionate about, put all of your time and energy in that thing, in that work, right? And it's, it's just, it's dangerous, frankly. It's incredibly dangerous. I mean, this is where we start from the very first tenet of the portfolio life. You are more than your job. The reason why this is dangerous, among all other reasons, is that you don't want to lose your identity, your passion, your livelihood all in the same conversation, right? And that's what happens when we hitch our identity to this profession that we've chosen. So all of this has to start with an understanding of who am I? What do I bring to the table? What do I care about separate from how am I currently monetizing my time? That's a choice of how I'm, how I'm putting those talents to use, not who I am when I wake up in the morning. And I think this is so fascinating as you point out this this tension of, you know, do what you love, have passion, and also you can only have one job, one thing. And I think this is an, an interesting mashup because the you can only do one thing has only really come out in like the last hundred years, right? So it's sort of post-industrialization as we automated things and had assembly lines and sort of broke work down into these really concrete nuggets. We needed employees, we needed workers who did just one thing. So we could slot them in interchangeably into this behemoth of industry. So that's what my grandfather did for 41 years. He welded chassis on the assembly line for General Motors, literally 41 years. And he didn't think that was his passion. He didn't expect that to be his passion. That was his job. And, and it worked for him. It took care of him. He could raise three kids, send them to college off of a one income for his family. Then my mom's generation comes along and then Gen X behind them and then millennials. And we're seeing that same expectation of you do one thing, you follow the ladder up. It's a linear life, all those stuff. And also you should have passion. You should, you should do a thing that matters to you. And we're trying to like make those two fit together and they don't really, but we sort of, we're seeing the evolution of these institutions while we layer on greater expectations without giving up the restrictiveness of the older model. And I yeah. think we've finally seen where those two things just fundamentally break down and we have to redesign. We have to redesign what careers look like, 
in a way that fits how we live today. Yeah, I mean, it's a lot of pressure. And also, to your point now and in your book, the world has changed. I, I Have you read um, a book called Range by David Epstein? Yes, I love that book. Right? Similar idea. And for listeners who aren't familiar with it, it talks about how generalists are in a better position to succeed in today's world versus in the past when specialists work, just like your example with your grandfather. And it's in part because of what you were also saying, because they can take ideas from one field and apply them to another in which that idea might feel revolutionary. And I think that book and then your book were those aha moments where, to your point, you're getting emails from people all the time. I think my initial email to you probably said, oh my God, thank you so much for making <laughs> me not feel like a flake, for actually making me feel like I'm doing the, the quote unquote right thing in terms of the way that the world is moving. I'm curious for you though, have you ever had a time in your life where you felt like your identity was so wrapped up in your work that you couldn't shift? Yes. Uh, when I started my first company. So I came out of business school and I spent one very long year in management consulting. We were not a fit for each other. That was a great thing to learn. And I did not see myself as my job then. And then I started my first startup. And for almost two years, everywhere I went, seven days a week, 24 hours a day, I was the founder and CEO of Quincy Apparel. I lived and breathed that company and I did nothing else. I didn't work out. I didn't see my friends. I didn't really date. All I did was work and build this company. And then the company had to shut down. We had raised venture capital. We had had some early success, but we just we never really found product market fit. We ran out of runway. We shut down. A very common story for a lot of tech startups. And when that happened, I crawled into bed and could not leave for three weeks because I had no idea who I was or what I had to offer to the world or why anyone would want to hire me. I was so tied up in that identity that when I lost it, it was paralyzing. And so for three weeks, I just watched all seven seasons of The West Wing. I was like, we're just going to, we're going to ignore all of this and escape to the world of President Bartlett. And then after three weeks of this, you could only hear him say, what's next? So many times before you're like, okay, Christina, what's next? So I got out of bed. I took a shower. I ate some vegetables. And, and then I was like, okay, like we got to figure out what's next. And crucially, this was the moment where I not only was like, okay, I've got I've to really separate my identity from my work. But I also really need to have an understanding of what do I want for what comes next? And what are my options for how I get that? And which of that comes from my job? And which of that comes from other pieces? Like, I'm never going to go all in on one thing ever again. Mm -hmm. That was so dangerous for those two years to have nothing else. And I don't mean like other sources of income, although I am a big fan of having multiple sources of income. I mean, literally... No relationships, no hobbies, no community, no rest. I was 100% allocated to this company. And you get a lot of pressure for that in startups and in other areas of life where investors want to see you all in. I'm sure that in really big jobs and corporate settings where you're like, I have to be all in. Yeah, that works for the company. That works for the investor. That's great for them. It's great for you, though. What was at stake for you? if you did not make that shift? 
at that time. I don't know what any other choice could have been. You know, I, I, I was raised in a family without a lot of money. When I went to school, college and business school, it was all very much on scholarships and loans. And when I graduated and decided to go do a startup, my family was like, that's great, but, but we have nothing to offer. There's no safety net. There was nowhere for me to move back home to. There was certainly no income helping me pay this off. And, and it was truly like the rock bottomiest of rock bottoms because I, it's like that Taylor Swift song, you're on your own kid and you always have been. I love Taylor. It was, it was literally that moment that I was like, okay, put on your big girl pants and let's figure out what comes next. And I knew that I never wanted to feel like that again. I never wanted to feel like all my eggs were in one basket. It didn't feel safe. It didn't feel stable. And when I realized that I can't prevent failure, certainly if I'm going to take risks, if I'm going to try to make something that matters to the world, I can't prevent failure, but I can mitigate failure through diversification. And that was where the click of like, wait, this model already exists in financial portfolios. We know the relationship between risk and reward both pays off in a financial portfolio and is mitigated through diversification. We know the math of portfolio theory. Why are we not applying this to our lives? Let's take a quick break. When we come back, Christina explains how she applied a financial model to her life and discovered her path to what was next. Hey there, it's Laura. Wanted to quickly pop in to let you know how much I appreciate your being here. I know there are a million podcasts you could be listening to, and I'm so glad you're spending time with us. If you're finding value in the show, we'd be grateful if you supported it by buying us a coffee. That's right. It couldn't be simpler. Visit buymeacoffee.com slash she knows the way to support our work for the price of a cup of coffee. That's buymeacoffee.com slash she knows the way. And thanks. Before the break, Christina shared the aha moment when she realized that diversifying her pursuits in work and life might be more stable than focusing on one thing. And that was where the click of like, wait, this model already exists in financial portfolios. We know the relationship between risk and reward both pays off in a financial portfolio and is mitigated through diversification. We know the math of portfolio theory. Why are we not applying this to our lives? I love that. I've so, so many times had to try to explain to my father that this approach is, I think, safer yes. in, than being an FTE, right, in yes. one company. And he's like, I don't understand. I'm like, I know you don't. It's okay. You don't have to. And it's okay. No, it's just the world has changed so much. And the relationship between organizations and workers have changed so much. The lifelong loyalty from an employee is not going to be rewarded. It's just not. We saw this in the last round of layoffs across all of the technology sector in the last you know, 12 to 18 months. People who had been there 15, 16, 20 years we're on the chopping block because that's mm -hmm. what the organization needed to survive, you know, the, the economic headwinds. And so you just have to remember that, like, I don't want to be mean about it, but it's not a family. It's a job. And you have to look out for yourself because the company is not looking out for you. They're looking out for themselves. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, totally. Even if they're small and 
family owned or women owned or whatever it is that you sure. attach to, they're still ultimately in business to be in business. <laughs> Correct. This idea of applying this business framework to our broader life. What if someone's listening to this and thinking, I do not have a mind for business. How can I possibly approach my life through that lens? One of the things I love about this model, you know, I'm giving you these words that come from the business world simply because these are pre-existing models and templates that a lot of people understand. But if this shorthand doesn't speak to you, great, throw that out and think about it a different way. A lot of what I point to in my case studies in the book, the stories of the people that I, I profile, really were inspired by, I call them the extreme users of portfolios, creative. And I, I have been asked many, many times, like, how did, you, how did you even think that this should be part of your life? Because I was doing this before my company. And then I narrowed in, went all in on the company, and I was like, whoa, that almost broke me. Let's like go back to this world that I was in before. And I, I started out this way because I started out in the performing arts. I was an actress, a director, a producer. There's no way to have stability in creative worlds through one job that like it, you know, pays you in perpetuity. That's just not how the industry works. And so you learn from the very beginning, okay, what are all the skills that I bring to the table? What are all the ways that I might be willing to monetize what I have? And how do I put together quite literally a portfolio of work to grow, to meet my rent and bills needs, to have the creative outlet I'm looking for, right? Like this is how creatives work. And so that's how I started my entire my entire career before I was introduced to the business framework. So if business words don't speak to you, that's fine. Think about it like a creative portfolio. Think about it simply. It's like, don't put all your eggs in one basket. That's easy enough. So how can you ensure that you have that diversification? Everyone is comfortable with that word, right? That, that can give you what you need while also helping you reach the things that you care about. And that when you start feeling friction, the model isn't quite working, or you're a little bit burned out, or you meet your goals, but you're not happy, that's a sign you need to reevaluate what you care about. Simple yeah. as that. What does that actually feel like for you yeah. when you are looking at your portfolio and you're like, hmm, something's not right? What does that mm -hmm. feel like? Well, I have a perfect story for this because I felt this absolutely personally. I was in a role where I was doing something that I theoretically loved. I had started an organization. I cared deeply about it, the mission. And, and it, it supposedly was exactly what I wanted to be doing with my time. But in reality, by this point in running this, the day-to-day -day existence was a little bit miserable. There was a lot of psychological energy being put into surviving the workday and very little joy coming out of the work that I was doing. And so I wasn't getting my needs met, if we want to use the language that we've been working with. And as a result of not getting my needs met, I was like, well, let's just add some other things to my portfolio to help meet those needs. So I started a part-time master's in computer science program. And I joined the board of a nonprofit that I cared a lot about. 
And I started taking all of these mentoring meetings with up and coming entrepreneurs who wanted advice on on where to go, especially women, first time founders. And I had like three other things. And my calendar was so crazy (laughs) that I would start the day at like 6 a.m. and I would finish it like standing, eating a bowl of cereal for dinner in my kitchen at like 1045. And every minute of the day was multitasking. And I was burned out and I still wasn't happy. And that was the moment where I said, okay, even using this diversification portfolio idea, it's not working. And I realized that I had added all these things in my portfolio because the primary point of joy and fulfillment and growth was no longer there in my day job. So I either had to change my expectations for that job or I needed to change jobs. And that was a really, you know, clear wake up call that like, this is a point of friction. Let's rebalance so that if you can get more needs met through your day job, you don't have to have 17 hobbies. You can have like two and, and crucially open up some space for friends, for dating. I was still very, very single at the time. And I, I was sort of lamenting. I'm meeting all these goals and I'm still really lonely. And so I called that my summer of joy where I defragged my calendar to use very old computer speak. I, I ripped out a bunch of stuff that it would just, just sort of accumulating and I made space for serendipity and for joy and for first date. And I met my husband that summer. So I think it worked. You ask yourself this question about your portfolio, you know, at the end of the year, am I happy? What does happiness mean to you? What does that look like to you? I mean, the best I can come up with is like when I'm going to bed, do I feel light or do I feel stressed? And I know that not every day is going to be a day where I can go to bed with a big smile on my face and be like, oh. What a great Monday that was. But on balance, are more days good than bad? Are the days that are stressful, am I seeing the payoff of that stress? And am I seeing the opportunities to breathe and to recuperate and to get back to myself after those crunch periods? Or is every day a day of stress? I truly do believe happiness is something that is so deeply uh, defined that you know when you are doing work, when you're having a day, when you're in a relationship that fills you versus meets the expectations you think other people have. What's the biggest mindset shift folks need to make if they want to make this shift from a linear career and life to a portfolio career in life? I think there are two pieces here. One is internal and it's related to identity. And this is the stories we tell ourselves about ourselves, right? So it's who am I? What do I allow myself to do? What are the maybe guardrails that I have put up potentially based on expired data, like things that were true once upon a time that might not be true anymore, right? 
it could be a story that like, hey, I got one point of feedback from a manager at 22 and I've been telling myself ever since I'm not a data-driven person. Don't let those things become the truth. So part of it is internal. Who are we and how do we see ourselves? And crucially, what do we allow ourselves to imagine, right? The optionality, a lot of this starts from internal limiting. The other piece is the stories we tell everyone else. And a lot of people really struggle to talk about themselves. They see it as bragging. They see it as just like, ew, cringe. And the challenge when you are leading a portfolio life is that it's not super obvious looking at your LinkedIn, tracking down your resume. It's not obvious what the connective tissue is, where the dots connect. You look at my LinkedIn and you're like, this chick is a flake. She, she can't make up her mind. I can feel what that. is going on here? Um, so I have to be really proactive in telling my story. I have to go out of my way and own that narrative and really share it with the people that I love and that I surround myself with. Hey, this is who I am. This is what I can do. This is what I'm looking for next. So that when they are in a room where they can speak my name, where they can connect me to an opportunity, they know how to. So it's not about bragging. It's literally just how do I arm my supporters, my network with the information they need to help me succeed? Yeah. Yeah. And I also find that when you connect those dots in your own head, even though, yes, it's in, in, to a large part in service to helping other people understand like where you fit. It also helps me really wrap my head around what part of this is still true, right? Yes. To your earlier point, And what do I still want to be focused on? So I think it can be beneficial in both ways. What do people often get wrong about you? Oh, man, uh, that I never turn off, which is I, I can understand why they think that that is true, but I regularly turn off. I am the queen of going to bed at 8.45 at night. I put my kids down, I say goodnight to my husband, and I go to sleep. I do not function on less than eight hours of sleep and preferably nine. And that just means that for this chapter of life where I have young kids and it's physically exhausting, I have a very pared down portfolio. There's a lot of things that I love that are just at a 0% allocation because there's no time for them. And I now understand the cost of burnout. In my 20s, where it was just me and no one depended on me, I could burn out left and right. It wasn't a problem. Um, obviously it was, but <laughs> now I'm at a place where like burnout costs something to my whole family. So even if I don't take care of myself for me, I do it for my family. But I regularly just have to turn everything off and like go be alone for several hours and or watch TikTok. What's next for you? I, well, my agent has already asked what I'm writing next. And I told her, <laughs> not yet. We have a, a policy in our house. Only one of us gets to write a book at a time. And my husband is also a writer. And so now that I'm done, he's working on his novel. And when he's done, I can talk about what's next. So it's not a book. Actually, what's next right now is I have just gotten into producing on Broadway. This has been my, my new fun side hobby. I started investing in it. And, and got got the bug. And now I get to be a co-producer on the new show Water for Elephants that's coming out in February. So fun. Based on the book. Everyone loves the book. Fantastic book. It's a gorgeous new musical that's been in development for 10 years. And it's a really fun way to like circle back to where I started 
in a channel that I literally would have never dreamed was possible, right? If I had at 22, if you asked me, what does this trajectory look like for you? Being a Broadway producer would have never made that list of dreams. And yet I found my way back in by leveraging the experiences of the last two decades in a way that I couldn't foresee. And I think that's the metaphor for everyone here. The future is so unknowable. And not just in the, it's the future sense, but the rate of change, the number of moving pieces, so much out there. This is the forecasting chapter. It's so unknowable. And that can be really scary, but it can also be really amazing. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And for me, learning to embrace that and not only be okay with it, but to, yes, to anticipate it and be excited about it has been a real shift yeah, for sure. What's a single thing that people can do if they are trying to forecast? This is my, my one big takeaway here is as you are imagining what could be possible, what might be possible, all the things you're like, okay, what, what might the future look like? If you can see how a specific choice that you can make today might make that future more likely to happen rather than not feeling empowered to go ahead and make that choice today. Mm. Right. And I give this example in the book of my friend, Leslie, who was 38. She wasn't yet partnered with anyone. She knew she wanted a family someday and she was feeling a ton of stress about this. It's a very common kind of story among a lot of uh, very high achieving women. And so rather than marinate in that stress, she decided to go and figure out, okay, what does a family look like? First of all, how do I define family? What does that mean to me? And she realized that she's like, oh, wait, there are like eight different ways for me to have a family. I could have my own children. I could have a surrogate. I could have donor sperm. I could meet a partner. I could adopt. I could foster. I could marry into someone who already has children. All of these I would consider a family. So that was, first of all, like, holy crap, there are eight different ways that I feel like I can get there. That already brings the stress down. And many of them are separate from her biological age, which also brings the stress down. And then as she looked at the ones that were attached to her biological age, she realized that freezing her eggs was the critical path for half of these avenues. So even though she didn't know which of these paths would end up being, she could decide today to go freeze her eggs. And feel like she just made the future of having a family so much more likely. And that just gave her that feeling of control, that illusion of control that allowed like the stress to not be the thing that overwhelmed her. And what I love about the end of the story, I just got a card from her the other day. She met her partner. She got pregnant naturally at 40. She had a healthy baby girl and she got a family. And you could have said she could have skipped all of that forecasting and she still would have got what she wanted. But for some people, that fear of the unknown, the fear of the future can be debilitating. It is for me. And so if this is a tool that helps you, great. If it's, yeah, don't worry about it. Well, I especially like it because it does give you the opportunity to look at all of the possibilities, right? Which yes. you wouldn't otherwise. And I think yes. for me personally, that's useful. This has been so fun, Christina. Thank you so much for your time. Of course. Thank you for having me. This has been a real pleasure.
Special thanks to Christina Wallace for speaking with me for this episode. If you'd like to connect with Christina, you can find her at her website, ChristinaWallace.com, on Instagram at CMWALLA, that's C-M-W-A-L-L-A, or on LinkedIn. And pick up a copy of The Portfolio Life at your local independent bookstore or on bookstore.org. She Knows the Way will be back in two weeks. We'll hear from Corey Kaborlis about the many identities we present to the world and redefining how we want to show up throughout our lives. I would just have that feeling of loss that so much of my story wasn't coming out. But, you know, now I don't have those feelings at all. I think that's maybe one of the benefits of getting older. You know, I just feel like my identity is, I carry it with me. It is more wrapped up in how I show up in the world than in where I was educated or where I've worked or any of that. This episode of She Knows the Way was written, edited, and produced by me, Laura Dolch. For more episodes, hit subscribe or follow or like or heart wherever you're listening right now. And if you'd like to stay in touch, email me at hello at lauradolch.com to tell me how you define success at this point in your life. Finally, if you know someone who could use help redefining what success means for them or taking their first steps into a portfolio life, please send this episode their way. Until next time, trust that you know the way.